I've said this to, um, to a lot of us before, but there's always a wait when our worship leader prays and oftentimes prays a prayer, uh, something along these lines of, Lord, speak to us today. And then I realize I'm the guy coming up to speak. It's a little bit of a wait. Would you ever feel that? So just for a moment, I want to talk to you a little bit about being a preacher. I don't know if anybody's going to be a preacher. In fact, I know some of you are because we've got some young seminarians in the room. I don't know if you'll ever be a lead pastor or go plant a church or something. But uh, just a word about sermons and sermon preparation. When I see you, I say this a lot, but when I see it, some of you around town, you will see me. And you're, a lot of you are in the back row. You know, you kind of don't want me to know that you come to our church. But you'll say, hey, there's the preacher and you only work one day a week. And then, isn't that, isn't that sad? My wife bemoans that fact. And then there are uh, others of you who will, uh, and I love you, you'll say, man, how do you do it? How do you, you, know, how do you face the grind of, of preaching and the, uh, each and every week, plus the, the pastoring part? And I, Jeff Tower, I want you to hear this. Uh, when we started the church uh, back in the day, uh, less than five years ago, man, I couldn't keep up that pace in, in 2012 and 13 and 14. I'm so glad that people like you are on this team to help lead us and use your gifts and others. And we're, getting, we're developing a staff team now, and that's such a savior for me. But there's still the grind of preaching, of, of, of preparing a sermon. And 99.9% uh, .9 of the sermons I've preached have been in solitary confinement. Uh, I don't mean that by punishment, but just kind of you know, studying and working on it. And uh, last year, there's a group of friends who are pastors, uh, several of them in California. Uh, they know me, and they heard that a few times at Fondren Church in this young church plant that I uh, stood up. I was stupid enough just to stand up on a Sunday morning and open mic, open mic it. And you guys, any of you are here for that, and you would text in your questions, and I would do my best to field those questions from you. And uh, just basically the big idea is that we wanted to show seekers, those who are searching, that to be a believer, you don't have to put your brain in a bucket when you come in the front door. That we live in a world where we want you to think. And there are among us here today, in fact, I think it's true in all of us, there's a cynic, there's a skeptic, there's a critic, there's a doubter. We all deal with that, don't we? And the First Peter 3.15 says, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And we need to cultivate our mind. And so the, the reason we did that a few times is take those questions just on the spot uh, was not to show you how much I know. In fact, it probably showed you how much I didn't know. And if you were here for any of those live on the spot questions, Several times I had to say, I don't know, I'll look that up, I'll get back to you. But anyway, some friends of mine who are preachers heard about that, and we've been talking and kind of formed a group where we've collaborated on a couple of sermon series, and insomnia kind of reflects that. And I'm going to give you a preaching uh, secret. There's a template that somebody showed me one time. It's, it goes like this, hook, book, look, took. And hook is an introduction. Any of, any, any of you done some public speaking? Hook is an introduction. And the idea that I've learned from some of these preachers is don't assume a ready-made audience. Right? I mean, people come and there's a, there's a defense that you have. I've heard this before. He's going to try to get me to do this or, or something, or we just drift. And so the idea of a hook is to stand up and create attention. Have something, ask a question, something that says, hey, you ought to hear this today. And then quickly, and the best preachers can do it quickly, is to go where? Go to the book. Go to the book because we're not a church that's built on contemporary motivational literature. We're not a church that says... Hey, here are all these sources. We believe the Bible is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that we may be made perfect, complete, lacking 
and nothing. Scripture gives us uh, that promise. So hook, book, look is let's go deeper into it. We don't be too shallow. What does the Scripture really say? And so it's fun. You know, it's fun. It's a challenge. It's the greatest joy of my vocational life and the biggest challenge of my vocational life is to work in the Scripture and to see what God is doing and what he would want to say to you. And then that last part is the took part. And based on what Jesus taught, you know, teaching without application is nothing. Jesus gave a parable in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, there's a foolish person and a wise person, and he doesn't refer. Uh, the difference is not uh, aptitude or intelligence, but the difference is the foolish person hears something and doesn't do it, and the wise person hears something and puts it into practice. And so the took is we, every Sunday we want you to go away with something, something you can say, hey, I can sink into this. My life can be different. You know, our world's craving that, aren't they? Our world is craving uh, people who, who say, hey, I'm learning, but I'm what? I'm doing. I'm doing something about it. Excited about today what we're going to teach you, although when you hear about it in a second, you're going to go, oh, man. And then I'm excited about today and excited about next week. We're going to talk about the family. Next week is a conference. First time we've ever done this at Fonder Church. We have a conference called Finders Keepers. And for the keeper part is if you're married, it's a marriage conference. And our friend, Dr. John Cox, is going to be here. I say our friend. He's friends with several in our church that admire him. I've talked to him on the phone. I've looked at his work online, his counseling and his teaching. It's going to be excited. It's next weekend, Friday night. Go home. Come back Saturday morning. Finders, keepers. Finders, if you're single and you want to learn to become the right person, the person that you should be, the person you should look for, you ought to be here. So you get that, right? It's a marriage conference for marrieds and singles, $40 per person or couple. We hope you'll take part in that. And on Sunday, I'm going to be sitting on the front row as somebody that I love and admire so much teaches on the family. Now, how many of you would like to learn a little bit about the family? How many of you maybe have some family woes? Probably not good that you raise your hand, but I just think we all need to be here next Sunday, and it could be a really, really rich time. And then after that, we're going to be doing a sermon series that I'm excited that I've been studying on uh, Nehemiah, and it's called uh, Rebuilding a Life. How many of you are looking at something that's broken? How many of you are looking at something that's just crumpled, that's maybe an ash heap or something in front of you that needs to be rebuilt? And we're going to look at that. Maybe it's a life or a marriage or family or, or your heart or hope or something. We're going to be looking at this great book, this character sketch of Nehemiah. And it's going to be, I think, a particularly powerful for young people who are leaders or aspiring leaders. As Nehemiah is just a great leader. There's just some really solid stuff that, that we, can, we can learn uh, from him. When I'm preparing a sermon, uh, this is the question I'm most asked ask most frequently, is the memorization part. Okay, a lot of you know that it's pretty obvious. Most of the sermons I either memorize or familiarize myself with. And I've learned, I used to kill myself in the early days of our church and uh, affect our marriage, I think, uh, adversely, just the time on memorizing. And then I realize as I'm working on a sermon over time, is if it's really, um, you know, working itself into my life, I pretty much have it 85% memorized before I start trying to memorize it. You ever like that? Like, you know, something that's really important to you or it's just, you know, you it's some, there's an association there. And so it's not just rote repetition or something. It's just something that that I, I find value. And there's a last part of a sermon that's where you're fashioning and flavoring and you're trimming and tying things together and tearing things away. And all of a sudden you look at a few pages on paper. It's your manuscript and you realize I got this like I've wrestled with this and I've got this and I believe God's people uh, need to hear this. And the last thing I do, I've, I've referenced this before also, I'll be in that room looking out over the parking lot to see if anybody's coming to church. 
And I'm praying that whoever God has for us on this particular day, you see there's the preaching part, but there's the listening part. And Jesus talked about this. He told a parable where there's soil, and the soil is like your heart. You know, because sometimes you hear the word, and Jesus said that it falls on some rocky or thorny soil. And he deferred, referred to that as the cares of this life, the lust for other things, the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word out. So you realize, I like to remind you this ever so often, there's a, you have a part in a sermon. You have a part in a sermon. You can help me in a lot of ways by, you know, not being a, a source of distraction. By showing me that you're listening to me. And one of the things, uh, one of the joys of preaching without notes, by the way, the best sermons I've ever heard are folks who have notes, okay? Let me just say that easily. But for me, it's more effective. It's better for me to, to come up with mostly without notes so I can see you and see your faces. And I, I, I stay away from the people that don't look at me. And I look for the people who seem like they're ready to hear the word of God. But what did Jesus say when you, when you listen, when you hear what is the condition of your heart? What's the soil like? The lust for other things, the cares of this world, got any of those? And the deceitfulness of riches can choke things out. This morning, as we continue with our insomnia series, Molly Sanders, uh, again, she said, what keeps me up at night is making of a murderer. And we're not talking about the silly things that keep you up at night, late night TV, being stimulated by, how many of you sleep with your cell phones right there? Just go ahead. Raise your hand. Right by your bed. You got your cell phone. You check it throughout the night. Okay, there's your problem, all right? There's your problem. There's your insomnia problem right there. But one of the things I think that keeps us up is finances. So everybody bemoan. Everybody go, oh, man, right? Hebrews 13, 5. This is a verse you're going to memorize before you leave today, okay? Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, that would be God, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Keep your life free from the love of money. Keep that verse up if you would. What's the first preposition? We're going to go English on you. What's the first preposition in this verse? Anybody know? From. Thank you, Linda Waterloo, who teaches at First Presbyterian Day School, who's just so, so uh, taken aback that I would mention her name in church today. But a teacher tells us that the first preposition in this verse is the word from. And a preposition is a word or words that draw a relationship between a noun or pronoun and the rest of the sentence. Okay, now that sounds complicated, but it's really not. The, the first preposition is the word from. Let's look at that. Let's just isolate that word just for a moment. There's a reason I'm doing this. When we talk about money at church... It's so easy to think, for you to think, oh, he wants something from me. Drop the M, switch the O and the R, and I think this is what today's about because I think it reflects God's heart. It's a different preposition. It's the preposition for. And I believe today, flowing from Hebrews 13, 5, is that God wants something for you. He wants something for me. Do you know that God is for you? He is. Our values at Fonder Church are gospel, community, and mission. And we've put some adjectives and stuff around that for greater meaning or, or, or to create uh, curiosity and learning for us. But one of the things that we say about gospel is gospel enjoyment. God is for you. God is for you. He's for your life. And when it comes to this area of your life, he's for you. Some of us think, a God is like the government. 
that he's constantly low on funds and endlessly searching for cash from us. Not true. God wants this for you. Now, there's a big difference between prepositions, right? Isolate this and stay with me. There's a big big uh, difference in the way you might hear this sermon and consider Hebrews 13, 5 today. I want you to get it. It's a difference in the preposition from and for. Prepositions are small things, but they're really big things. Let me give you an example. It's true in my own life as I observe a couple of different men that I know. I know one man that's fighting with his family. I know another man that's fighting for his family. It's a big difference, isn't it? Massive. God wants something for you. What does he want? According to Hebrews 13, 5, he wants what? He wants you to be free from, now this is a for, he wants this for you, but in order to have it for you, he wants you first to be free from the love of money. God values freedom. He really does. He created a man and a woman, and when he created them, he placed them in a garden, and he said, you've been given a choice. You are free. Deuteronomy tells us that he put before us both life and death and that we are to choose. He's given us freedom. Jesus taught when he said, I come, I've come to give you life, abundant life. You will know the truth. And what will the truth do? The truth will set you free. There's that freedom. Romans, this great book that I know uh, the one couple, one group is studying in their community group on Wednesday night, the book of Romans, Paul says, talking about the substitute payment that Jesus has made for us. He says that it is a free gift. Salvation, you got to receive it, but it's a free gift. God cares about our freedom. Galatians, free, Galatians 5, rather, says that it is for your freedom that Christ has died. Look at that passage, Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There you go. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. There's a response to the freedom that God has given us. It's not you living according to your own desires. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be what? Burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul, you know, when people, when someone loves somebody, they sometimes say hard things. Paul would say something hard to the church at Galatia. He would say, you foolish Galatians. Now, if I called you foolish, would you come back to Fondren? I don't know. But I do know this, that there's folly in every heart, including my own. And sometimes, though I've been given free gift of salvation, I fall back. I I look for things that I ought not to be looking for and sources of which are never going to satisfy me. And I'm, I'm in bondage. I fall back. And what does Scripture say? about finances in this area. Just channel your inner Dave Ramsey. The borrower is servant to the lender. Are we free? Are are you free? Are Americans free in this area of our finances? God is a fan of your freedom. He wants that for you. Keep your life free from the love of money. That's the first part of the verse you're memorizing, okay? So say it. Keep your life free from the love of money. One writer says that our, 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 our perspective on money can be a dichotomy. It can either be a drug or it can be a tool. 
and think about a drug. I mean, if, if you're looking for a drug, you're looking for outside stimulant. You're looking for something external to provide for you something internal. You're looking for something to, what, to take you away. You're looking for escape. You're looking for a cheap thrill. You're looking for something like that. And you can walk by someone who's on drugs and you can see them and you can think, man, they're, lo- they're not finding what they're looking for. It's a drug. And we can look at money and we can say, hey, money for me is going is to help me obtain happiness and it's going to provide security. It's going to help me gain power, acquire happiness. It's going to quench a thirst. It's going to provide all of things for, things for me. It's going to help me find my self-worth. And I want to ask you this morning, can money do that for you? Can money do that? And when we look for it to be that way, how many of you, by the way, you bought a ticket a couple of weeks ago? You bought a Powerball? You wouldn't raise your hand. Yeah, okay. We got some folks that aren't ashamed of the game. You bought a ticket. How'd that work for you? Yeah. I saw something on Twitter last week. It said, hey, you know, you didn't win the Powerball Lotto, but the Wendy's has still got the four for four. (laughs) You bought that. And those of you who raised your hand, just nod to me if you would. But you would give 10% to the church, right? To this church. Is that right? More than 10? Okay, I'm seeing more than 10. That's awesome. No judgment here. But isn't it intoxicating to think, oh, man, no work, instant riches. And that is a drug, isn't it? I mean, that's just, that just, that's a drug. But think of a tool. It happened to me this week. I walked by some guys who are gifted in ways I'm not, and a few men were working on constructing something. And I saw them with tools. I barely could name the tools, much less use them. And these men were uh, proficient in what they were doing and they were working and they were what? They had tools and gifted hands and they were using it for an intended specific purpose to build something in which would bless others. Are you with me? Money, we can see it as a drug or we can see it as a tool. God desires for you and I to keep our lives free from the love of money. And what does it say? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Now, how convicting is that? If we got uh, today, if we divided the room between people who genuinely are content and those who aren't, the, the church would, it would, it would sway on one side, wouldn't it? It'd be all of y'all and then me on one side, right? It'd be, you know. No, I'm in the battle. I'm in the battle. That's why I appreciate what Paul says, Philippians chapter 4. He said this on contentment. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. I know that what it, I know, I'm sorry, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, you know what we do, maybe you're not like me, but you know what I do when I read that? I go to the part about, I've learned the secret. I go to that part and go, what's the secret, right? What's the secret sauce? What's the easy way? What's the formula? What's the pill that I can take? What's the secret? But I think the power is in the part where Paul says, I have learned. I have learned. I've learned to be content. Now, the studies I've looked at over the last several months have shown that between that you and I are bombarded with images uh, somewhere between uh, five and 12,000 images a day. I don't know what the right number is. I don't know how they measure that. But between five and 12,000 images a day bombard us. And what do those images do? They tell us what you ought to look like, what you ought to own, where you ought to shop, how you ought to live to feel happy and significant. And guess what we're doing? 
We're buying in. We're buying in. Look at our malls. I had one of my kids at a mall yesterday, right? Look at the malls. We're, we flood. They're, they're cathedrals of, of consumerism. And we go to those things and we worship at them. And the money there is a drug to get what we want to make us try to obtain some freedom, sense of happiness and well-being. We don't just shop at malls. Y'all know this. We shop at Sky Malls. We shop in a shiny metal tube thousands of feet above the earth's surface. You ever bought anything from Sky Mall or looked at those magazines on a flight? I mean, there's some advertising in there, right? Oh, you got to have this. I see things in a Sky Mall magazine. They're not available in stores. And I want to shop. I, I want to have. This week I was watching a movie. I don't know why. But I was watching a movie called The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise in the movie is a Japanese samurai, and he uh, takes out a bunch of people. He saves the nation of Japan, which I love the movie because it's realistic. <laughs> and, and I love this scene where Tom Cruise is walking. He's walking across this open field at the very end of the movie, and the narrator does a voiceover. And he says the following. He says... Do we know what's become of this man? Do we know what will become of this man? Will he die slowly of his own wounds? Will he return to his country of origin? Or will he eventually finally find the peace contentment that he worked so hard for? You know, that's us. I think if you're a teenager, you're in a battle. I pray for all of us as parents and teachers and mentors, for Daniel Wagner, our student minister, because you're in a battle. And honestly, I don't want to be Debbie Downer today, but I don't know that you get there to mature contentment when you're a teenager or early adult, but I think you need to be learning. I think you need to be learning. But the images that we get, the images that our young people get that give us a a false view of what life is about. But contentment is learned over time. And you know what I love about Paul? So many things. But I love that there were times when he didn't have anything. And there were times when he had a lot. And he says there's something about being content. There's something that God can give. Three super fast points that I want to give you today. The first is to live freely. We've already talked about that. God is for you. This is not something God wants from you, like the government. It's something he wants for you. And what does he want for you? He wants you to be free. He wants you to be free from the love of money. He wants you to be content, live freely. The second thing I want to say to you is save wisely. Save wisely. Everybody in the room knows about this character, right? Pinocchio. What's the story behind Pinocchio? When he lies, what happens? His nose grows. Here's the simple point. There are what? Immediate consequences. But how many of us in life really face immediate consequences? Robert Morris in his book, The Blessed Life, talks about things in life that have immediate consequences and those, who, and those situations that don't. And it's really tilted on one side, how, much, how, much, how many things in your life have immediate consequences? Think about it. But think of the things that are so important to your future and who you are, to who you want to become, but they don't have immediate consequences. 
Think of a diet. You can walk into a subway and eat fresh, but you don't walk out sleeker and slimmer, do you? You can walk into five guys and roll in, but you don't necessarily roll out 20 pounds heavier, right? They're not necessarily immediate consequences. Think of car maintenance. Car maintenance. Do you change your oil every 3,000 miles? I don't even know if you should these days. I don't, know what the, I don't know what the science there is. You know, I used to think, how many of you, how many, you saw the news report this week? I thought it's good to go out and warm up your car. Do you see that? And now they're saying, don't, I don't know why. Do you see that report? Like they're saying, don't go out and warm up your car. Very unloving thing to do if you're married. But for whatever reason, y'all look it up and tell me later. I didn't, I didn't follow the story, but they, they were like warning us on local national news. Don't go out and warm up your car. I don't get that. I thought you're supposed to. But do you change your oil every 3,000 miles? Some people say it's every five or 7,000. Some of you change it every 10 or 15. And, but there may not be, if you don't change your oil every three to five, there may not be immediate consequences. For several weeks, I'm going to indict myself here. For several weeks, in fact, let me just be honest, for, for a couple of months, in my truck, there was a light on the dashboard that said, tire pressure low. And day after day, week after week, I did nothing. And when I had to drive out of town, I took her car. But I did nothing about the tire pressure. And Friday morning at 6 a.m. and about 25 degrees, I walked outside, deflated tire. The consequence wasn't immediate. But day after day, I neglected that. And I think in finances, it's sort of that way. Pinocchio's nose doesn't grow. It's not an immediate thing, but over time, Scripture teaches us and life shows us that we ought to be wise. Now, I know, because we've got a lot of college kids here today, college students, but uh, let me see a hand. If you're 20 years old, uh, raise your hand. You're exactly 20 years old. Do we have a 20-year-old? 20, 20 uh, right there. What's your name, ma'am? Laura. Laura, let me talk to you for a second. Laura's 20 years old. Laura, if you were to take a 5000 I don't know where you're going to get 5000 but if you were to take $5,000 every year and put it in a Roth IRA that earns 8% interest, by the time you're ready to retire at 70 years old, you'll have $1.9 million. <laughs> now, will Laura do that? We don't know. We don't know Laura. Most Lauras don't. <laughs> Robert didn't. <laughs> and I want three people in the room to hear this. Proverbs says, a good man leaves an inheritance. And when I die one day, my kids will say, my dad was not a good man. <laughs> and I'll be preaching, probably not here, you're not going to let me, but I'll be preaching somewhere when I'm 85 years old, right? Proverbs says, the borrower is servant to the lender. You don't need to hear that from me. You hear from Dave Ramsey all the time. That's in Proverbs. Also in Proverbs, a good man leaves an inheritance. To be smart, Proverbs 27. Now, it's written a long time ago in an agricultural economy. But the, the, in Proverbs, the wisdom there is you can do things with your animals and your, your crops and all. And you can save and you can replenish. And there's something good about thinking ahead. And for us to live freely and to save wisely is a really good thing. And here comes the third part, and you knew I was going to get there. Give generously. Live freely. Save wisely. Give generously. What did Jesus talk more about than anything else? Do you know the answer I'm going to give you? What are the top two topics Jesus preached about, spoke about more than anything else? Number one. Drum roll. 
the kingdom of God. We'll throw love in there. I hate for you. To, I hate for somebody to say love and get it wrong. You know, that's just you know you don't don't walk away. Don't hold your head low today. He talked about love in the kingdom of God. But he talked about the kingdom of God, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, your reign, your rule, your presence. We think heaven is, you know, waiting. It's like an insurance policy and then we, you know, we cash it in later. But Jesus taught in John 17 that this is eternal life, that you know me. Eternal life starts now. The God's presence here with us, the church, the believers, we ought to pray that prayer. God, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This isn't just some insurance policy. Live like we want to now and just hope to get in and bring some people with us. It's now the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And love people. The kingdom of God. Secondly, money and possessions. Why? Was he cash starved? He didn't have a lot, didn't want a lot, didn't have a lot of possessions. He moved around. It was a very, very simple life. He talked about money and possessions because nothing can grip our hearts. Now, I've taught this before when Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You got to look at that passage. What it is in Greek is what it was translated into English. You cannot serve God and money. You will, what does he say? You'll either hate one or love the other. That means that if you and I love God, we hold that very loosely. Jesus talked a lot about it. He connected the eternal with the temporal, the spiritual with the tangible because he knew that it goes down deep. Let's just say, I mean, nod your heads and I'll hurry up, but just nod your heads if you think this is true. Money goes down deep, doesn't it? I mean, it, it goes down deep. 70%, again, statistics vary, but 70% of marriages that are in trouble are having serious fights about money. What kind of future are we giving our kids? The national deficit, it raises so much per day that if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. So go look it up yourself. But it's weighing on us and it keeps us up at night and Jesus wants us free from worry and anxiety and insomnia. He wants our sleep to be sweet. He wants us to experience the rest that he gives and to be free from the love of money. He wants us to give. Look at the early church, Acts chapter four. This will make you nervous for a second, but it's very freeing. Acts chapter four, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Could you imagine a family where there weren't needy people? Does that sound like a goal that's just not reachable? Does that sound like a goal that's so upsetting it would upset the conventional categories of how you live that we ought just to kind of bypass that? That's one of those preacher, that's one of those hydroplane verses. Just go right on past it. But look, go back if you would, if you can up top there. And there, you see the highlighted part. That was me earlier before church. I got up there on a ladder and I highlighted that with my yellow highlighter. Just the little things I do because we love you. They felt that what they owned was not their own. Would you be willing to say that with me? They felt that what they owned was not their own. Now don't look, just look at me. They felt that what they owned was not their own. 
Robert Morris in the book, The Blessed Life, puts it this way. I love this analogy. He says that let's, let's pretend you're with your financial planner. And if you understand, we've got some financial planners in the room. I don't because I don't have enough to plan with. But we have financial planners in the room. But imagine you're with your financial planner and you sit down and they say to you, what are your goals? What are your goals and what can I do? How can I help you with your money? That's a good financial plan. I mean, it's a good start. We don't know if it's going to be crooked or not, he or she, but that's a good start to the financial planning process. What are your goals? What can, what can I do? How can I help you with your money? But let's say you're with a financial planner and that person, he or she, looks at you and says, man, I'm glad we have this relationship because my kids want a swimming pool, right? And I'm glad that, man, I'm, I'm going to make some off you. This is going to be good. You want a financial planner that understands the difference between the manager and the owner. And Jesus taught this parable in a few different places, most beautifully, I think, in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, don't read it unless you want to be convicted in some ways, but Jesus, it's the verse where Jesus talks about eternity and what's going to surprise us in eternity and how we get it wrong, the whole value system, and that there's actually people around us who represent Jesus. And it's far from the country club life. And at the extent that we love them, we love Jesus. And he talked about the parable of being a manager and of being a steward. And here's the thing. God is the owner. God is the owner of all. Psalm 24 says what? That God, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He owns everything. Psalm 55, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Lord owns it. We are, we're only the managers we answer to the owner. What would our lives look like if we were like the early church? Now, when I told you not to get nervous, here's what I'm saying to you. There's clear evidence in the New Testament that people who had homes kept those homes. All right? Let's understand that. In fact, the church, it goes on after this, talk about the church. They met house to house. They came to the temple. They sat in rows and they worshiped God together like we're doing right now. But they also went house to house. People kept their houses. Some of you have beautiful homes. One of our dear friends, they hosted a Christmas party for us back in middle to late December. Uh, I wrote him a thank you note. It said, man, thank you for hosting. We love y'all. Your home is beautiful. And I'm glad they have the home. The last home they had was beautiful. This one is even more beautiful. And I'm glad they have that home. They use it to host. They use it. They're among the most generous people I know. And they host things and love people. And their home is used in a beautiful way. This isn't a... Be homeless first. But it is a look out for others more than you look out for yourself. Give, give generously. There are five things that you can do with your money. Here's, here's what they are. You can spend it. You can pay debt. You can pay taxes. You can save it. You can give it. Larry Burkett, you ever heard of him? That's what he says. You can spend it, you can pay debt, you can pay taxes, you can save it, you can give it. And don't we kind of do it in that order? Spend it, look at the recipient. If you go one through five, look at who benefits from each one. If you spend it, that's about me. If you pay debt, that's about me. If you pay taxes, remember what Jesus said, render to Caesar, what are Caesars? And I hate we spelled America this way. It should be an apostrophe with America. But if you pay taxes, that's, that's we, that's America. And then you save it, that's, that's me. Or you give it. And that's to God. How hard is that? How hard is it for you? 
It goes this way. I saw a preacher do this one time and it stuck with me and it's impacted me. It's challenged me. It's inspired me. It means this. But before we do this, let's look at Proverbs 3.9. It's up on the screen. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. I didn't, I didn't get up there with a the yellow highlighter on this one, but if you highlighted a word, it would be first fruits. First. First. For every $10 we get, Susan and I, we take one. We give that to God. The second one we take and we invest that for ourselves in savings. This is what we live on. It's what we live on. To let you know, God has blessed Fondren Church. He's blessed Fondren Church from the very beginning. I won't share some stories because I've shared them several times, but to me, they're eye-popping stories of when we were afraid, when we had a need and we weren't sure and welcome to church, Brittany Bayless, one of our students who was here right when we started the church. And we, when we started, we were scared to death. Would God provide? And man, he did. Through some of you, through some others, God provided. If you go start an organization, a business, a church, I pray that you would find some of the early success that God blessed us with. He immensely blessed our church. Back in mid-December, I was with Jeff, the elders, our finance team, and they were rolling some numbers around. And I tried, that was a meeting where I tried to be as quiet as possible because I'm the dumbest guy in the room. And I don't look at everything, but I remember going, oh Lord, I'm getting nervous again. I was having those feelings like I had four and a half years ago of Lord, are you going to provide for this church? Uh, the goal, I read this this week, the goal is for us not to be large and fancy. The goal for us is to be solid and healthy. But God desires for our church to bear fruit and to impact lives. And mostly, most folks don't give. What I want to encourage you to do is begin to think about what the scripture teaches. Again, I know the cynic's going to say, hey, this is what we want from you. But we don't speak out of scarcity. We speak out of God blessing our church and doing good things in our midst. But I want to challenge you, and I know I'll get some criticism. Somebody's going to tell me today, man, Robert, teach tithing because the Bible does, and don't, don't weaken that. So I want to encourage you to do things God's way, to give, to save. To spend the rest. But for you, maybe, maybe this could help you. Some guys developed a, what they call a generosity ladder. And they said that maybe for our churches, because most people don't give, and I've told you before I said this in December, we are a sleeping giant. The impact that we could have as a church if people would step up on the ladder. But for some, you've never given, ever. So the challenge for you on the ladder would just be a first, become a first-time giver. Trust God to give. For others, maybe uh, you, you've stepped up on the ladder and you're sort of a sporadic giver. You, you give occasionally. when You don't give out of the first fruits. You give if you have a little excess. And for others, you've, you've stepped in and you are a, you're a percentage giver. You're picking a percentage. You, there's an amount that you give every week or every month and you trust God with that. But for others of you, like Susan and I have committed to for so long, you're a tither and you give the 10%. It's a regular, it's first fruits 
of your giving. But you know, John Ortberg, a teaching pastor in Menlo Park, California, says that tithing is really training wheels. That to give God all of our heart, our generous heart, is like the Tour de France. And we don't stop at tithing. Now, I'm not going to walk another step on this ladder. (laughs) Because I'm even with the balcony and my wife is worried sick. Just look at her if you can see her. I'm almost 50 years old. I'm going to step down now. God has blessed our church. He is blessing our church. And we learn from the example of some of you and your generosity. I know somebody in this church who saw someone who needed a car. You know what they did? They got him a car. I know someone in our church who saw someone who didn't have a place to live. Do you know what they did? They got him a place to live. I was out a few nights ago on a very cold night. Uh, My tires were deflated but not flat yet. And I drove by and I saw a homeless man, I'm, I'm assuming, and he was being cared for by a few singles at Fondren Church. Seeing needs and blessing. You see, we won't live freely unless we learn to, you gotta, you gotta invert it. We gotta give generously. We gotta save wisely. Laura, are you gonna do that? Okay, 1.9 million. We'll see you back here in 40 five, 50 years. We've got to save wisely in order to live freely. I know, I know, I know, I know. Today for some will be about what we want from you. And let me just say the impact in our community can be so great with people step up on the generosity ladder. But truly, what I hope for you today is that you'll see this is something that God wants for you to be free from the love of money, to be content with all you had. For the Lord has said, what? I will never leave you or forsake you. you. Do you guys have the verse memorized? Can you say it? Anybody? Raise your hand if you're ready to say the verse. I'm gonna let you come up here and say the verse if you can. I see that hand. You wanna come up here, young man? Do you know it? I told Wesley I'd pay him the 10 bucks if he'd come up and quote the verse. (laughs) Just say it out loud, Wesley. I'm getting nothing. Keep your life free. Beautiful. What a great young man there. I'm keeping the money, but pretty good job. It's yours. It's yours. Is that wrong to make money off quoting a verse that talks about keep your life free from the love of money? (laughs) I'm going to struggle with this one all week. (laughs) Pray with me.